This is the All Markets Summit podcast from Yahoo Finance. Joining us now, Andy Serwer with Jess Staley. All right, Jess, great to see you. Welcome to the Yahoo Finance All Markets Summit. It's great to be here, Andy. So, an American banker in the UK. That's Jess Staley, and running one of the largest financial institutions on the planet. And that's probably a story in itself, being an American there. But I think I'd like to start off, Jess, by asking you to explain to us, Americans and international audience, what the heck is going on in the UK with Brexit? Just what is your, I mean, it's so vexing to us, uh, and yet, in a way, familiar. So what's the state of affairs? You know, to a certain, it's, it's interesting that it's happening with, this, with the political environment in parallel in the U.S. In the U.S., to, to a certain extent today, you have a constitutional crisis. Mm. Uh, in the U.K., in a way, you, you've got a crisis because there's no constitution. Um, the, the political architecture in, in the U.K. is really one that's evolved over centuries, and there is, there, uh, there is no rule book. Uh, and so the actual role of the prime minister and parliament and the queen uh, has just been developed over time. And you've got a situation now where, one, they, they, the government under the prime minister Cameron called for a, a referendum to leave or stay in the European Union. And, it's, uh, and, and because there is no real rule of governance law, is that referendum applicable? You know, you know, does it have staying power? Is it, you know, do you have to really follow the fact that the majority of the population voted to, to leave? That's an open question. And then what you uh, uh, have is, you know, Parliament has, has sort of broken down where you've got, you've got a whole bunch of different camps and no one can pull together a, a majority. So you have this massive stalemate that where basically nothing can get done. Um, uh, what the current prime minister wants to do is he wants to force an election because he thinks that uh, by being strongly in favor of, of leaving, even without a deal with the European Union, uh, that, he will, that he will win uh, handily. And, uh, and the Labour Party, which is the far left in the UK, I think, um, believes he may have a shot at doing that, so they're not letting him call an, an election. And so we're sort of stuck right now. Uh, um, um, the key issue uh, uh, really is Ireland, and I've been saying this since the referendum vote, is to keep an, an eye on, on Ireland. Because if you live in the UK, let alone if you live in Ireland, the civil war between Northern Ireland and Ireland that went on for centuries was incredibly violent and, and hurtful across, uh, across the UK and Ireland. There was a Good Friday peace deal done by a senator that, that, that you and I know well. Mm -hmm. And what that deal did is it basically convinced the Irish that Northern Ireland was still part of Ireland. And you can drive from Dublin to Belfast back and forth all day long. But then he also convinced the uh, people in Northern Ireland that, uh, and the people in Great Britain that Northern Ireland is part of the UK. There's no border between the UK and Northern Ireland. Um, but that lack of border between Ireland and, and Northern Ireland is really what keeps that whole Irish island together and out of conflict. Um, uh, if you pull the UK out of the European Union, technically you need a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. And that is something that is just antithetical to everyone in Ireland, most everybody in Northern Ireland, and poses a real risk. And it shouldn't go unnoticed that there 
already have been some bombs that have gone off, you know, the new IRA, as they've called it. So this Irish issue is really critical, and, 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 and the deal will ultimately have an, have, uh, happen if they get some resolution to the Northern Ireland issue. But it's very complicated. Wow, I didn't realize that whole, I mean, I knew that Ireland was an issue in this whole process, but I didn't understand that context. That's fascinating. Um, a lot of people in the United States sort of think that they should have another referendum and that Brexit would be easily defeated. Is, could there be another referendum and would it be defeated? There, can be, uh, there could be another referendum, and uh, a lot of people like the ex-Prime Minister uh, Tony Blair is working hard to try to have a, a second uh, a referendum. Um, uh, I think it's 50-50. Uh, 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 how it would how it would come out, as you've seen, even again in 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 many locations, whether it's France, whether it's the United States, a lot of people don't necessarily vote for what's economically in their best interest. There are a lot of there, uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, motivations pushing voters around this day, and 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 immigration is an issue in the UK, and um, uh, so I think it's very undetermined. But the real problem with the second referendum is what's the referendum about? You know, to have another one that says stay or leave, that would be disastrous because the real issue is stay or leave, but how you're going to leave. And so you need to put a, an exit strategy on the referendum that the European Union would accept and try drafting that. So I, I think uh, I, a second referendum, again, because there's no rules, you, it's not binding, um, uh, and ultimately, you know, it's, it's sort of parliament that will decide, and what, 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 what Boris is saying now is parliament is ignoring a legitimate referendum by, you know, by, by the British population to, to, to leave. So what does a second referendum really give you if you can just turn it down again? Wow, that just adds to the complexity. I'm just shaking my head. So, all right, so how do you think this is going to play out then? I mean, where are we going here? <laughs> well, I, 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 think, uh, um, I think the UK is, is feeling the burden of it. Obviously, sterling, uh, the exchange rate between the dollar and sterling is off a lot. The economy clearly is growing at a slower pace than it otherwise would. Uh, investment is not being made in the UK that would otherwise be made. And, and you take, you know, you take Barclays as as an example. You know, when the referendum vote happened, the one thing we said to ourselves is because this is such a politically, you know, dangerous issue, it will not be solved until the very, very end. In fact, we uh, uh, we were wrong. It's, it's not. It, it wasn't resolved at at the end. They moved the end out. But we basically restructured the bank to deal with whatever happens in Brexit. So what we've done is we've, take a th uh, we've taken a third of our British bank, and we are now the largest bank in Ireland. And all of our branches, from Frankfurt to Milan to Madrid, are now branches not of a bank in London, but of a bank in Ireland. And the capital necessary to support that bank in Ireland has moved to, to, to Ireland. So that, on one level, is, I think, a loss. You know, manageable, and London's going to stay the financial capital of Europe, in my view. Um, but there's been a price to be paid for it. Now, over the long term, over 20, 30, 40 years, will it have been a good thing or a bad thing economically to have independence away from Brussels? That's, uh, that's, that's a fair question to ask. That's fascinating. I mean, so overall, it's a, a negative for the bank, is it? Or could you turn this into a positive, even? It's not a, you know, 
the risk for the bank is what happens to the UK economy, obviously. So if there's a recession uh, or whatnot, that impacts Barclays. But um, to, to, uh, to a certain extent, part of the response to the financial crisis has been a balkanization of, of, of finance. 45% of our business is in the United States today. Uh, to do that, we had to create a bank subsidiary in the United States with a whole new regulatory construct, its own board of directors, its own CEO, uh, a CEO. and so we created that in 2016. Um, uh, now, then in the UK, they required us for our consumer retail bank to set up a ring fence bank. It's got its own general ledger, it's got its own board of directors, it's got its own data centers. It's totally protected from the rest of the bank. It's got its own regulatory framework. And now, to operate in Europe, we have a bank subsidiary in Ireland, which is part of the European Union. It's got its own board of directors. It's regulated by the European uh, Central Bank. So we have basically three, three separate banks to deal with the regulatory framework that has come out of the financial crisis. But we can do today, for our customers and clients around the world, what we could do before all this happened. You know, I was just about to ask you, Jess, I mean, Barclays stock has been under pressure over the past several years. And I think maybe you just answered why to an extent. Because, I mean, if I'm an investor, that level of complexity, even if you go from A to B to C, fine, you get there. It just sounds like as an investor, that's a tough thing to have to explain to someone. Is that part of the reason why the stock has been under pressure? So it, it, is, it's, it is obviously deeply frustrating. In the first six months of the year, we had the most profitable statutory first six months that this bank has had since the financial crisis. We've tripled the dividend in the last two years. We have the highest dividend rate since, we had, uh, 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 since the financial crisis, and the stock's under pressure. There are three reasons. One, there is the uncertainty of Brexit. If you're, if you're an investor, why buy a UK stock today? Right. You wait until the uncertainty of Brexit is over. The second issue is interest rates. You know, interest rates in Europe are extremely low. You have 17 trillion uh, uh, euros worth of negative interest rate sovereign debt. In the UK, the 10-year gilt is now below 50 basis points. If you're a bank and interest rates are basically hitting zero or, or negative, it puts pressure on you. And that's why virtually every European bank is trading below its book value. And the third one, which is sort of a little bit self-inflicted, and I think the regulators are coming to grips with this, the US uh, regulatory response was to basically hit the banks all at once. And the recapitalization and recalibration of risk for the US banks was basically done by 2010. Uh, and everyone believes now that the Federal Reserve and the, and, the, and, and the U.S. Treasury is done recapitalizing and recalibrating risk for the banks. They don't have that conviction about the European regulators nor the Bank of England. The European regulators felt that they would, they would bleed over time the new recalibration of risk called IFRS 9 and the recapitalization over a period of time, even going out to 2022. You know, it doesn't work that way. If, if, if an investor sees that something may happen in 2022, they discount what, uh, 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 what it means today with uncertainty. And so it's basically Brexit, it's interest rates, and we've got to stop the re-regulation of the banking system to let the banks uh, recover in terms of the value in, in Europe, including Barclays. Well, I mean, that, that is a lot to chew on. And, and I think, you know, as you're suggesting, the uncertainty just makes that a tough sell. I mean, if you're talking to an institutional investor, you're like, okay, bear with us. We got this, we got this, we got this. We're, but we're really profitable, doing really well. But we do have this, this, and this. And then, yeah, the added 
problem that you know, Barclays faced, and to a certain extent more than uh, many others. We had, when we arrived at, at Barclays four, four years ago, we were being uh, sued by governments around the world for LIBOR, for foreign exchange, for commodities trading. Uh, the bank had done a capital raise uh, uh, in, in the Middle East, which we were being criminally prosecuted by the British government up until last year. And then we had this thing in the UK called, called PPI, which is a, a, an insurance program sold to consumers by all the uh, UK banks in the early 2000s, 2002, 3, 4, and 5. Um, and and it, it was deemed by the regulators and by the courts as to be bad sales practices. The British banks uh, in the last five years have paid claims out to UK citizens on an on a, on a, uh, um, um, interest rate basis of 8% per annum for like 15 years, 50 billion pounds. That's the book value equity of the British banking system. That's how much capital has gone to, to, to and you know, the banks did things wrong and we, and we have to repent for what we did and whatnot, but we gotta get all the bad conduct and litigation issues behind us and we finally have that done now. I gotta ask you, why the heck did you take this job? <laughs> I mean, right? You must have been crazy, right, to get, get yourself into this thing. Well, one, one uh, director who I have enormous respect for when, when we were talking about doing this said, said, said that. He said, you're undercapitalized, you've got all these litigation conduct issues, you've got the re-regulation going on, you know, they may not let you make this work. Um, but the bank is in a great place now, as I said, best earnings in, in, uh, uh, in over a decade. Uh, we're in a good place and, and, and we'll be fine. I mean, it sounds like you're making the argument not, not overtly. Um, the, that, you know, the stock is undervalued. I mean, you might not be in a position to say that as a chief executive officer, but. Oh, it's undervalued. I'm happy to say <laughs> Okay, you said it. You heard it here. Um, I, I want to drill down on one facet, one of your problems, one of your issues, which is not any of your doing, but which scares the heck out of me. And tell me if I'm wrong, which is negative interest rates. I mean, I don't understand why you can give someone $100 and then five years later they give you back $98. I just think it's weird, and I don't know how it's going to end, but how is it going to end? So, so I'll give you sort of what I think might be a, an odd response. Uh, I, as I have tried to anticipate what was going to happen in the global economy, and particularly UK and Europe, to a certain extent uh, the US, the last four years, I've been wrong every year. And, and, and what's, what's difficult for me is if you and I were sitting on this stage 10 years ago and we said, okay, we're gonna have a 10-year economic recovery in Europe and the US, we're gonna have the lowest unemployment rate almost ever in the US, lowest unemployment rate ever in the UK, where would the 10-year treasury be? 15%. It would be at least a, a four-handle or, or, or yeah. five-handle. Yeah. Not one and change going south. Where would the guilt be? You know, the 10-year guilt would be four or 5%, not 50 basis points. So there's something going on where low unemployment, 10-year economic growth is not transmitting into inflation, is not transmitting into wage pressure, and therefore the market believes that there is no inflation right now, and therefore we can keep interest rates extremely low, and the central banks are being very accommodative. I think the challenge for Europe and the UK and to a certain extent, the U.S. administration has the one that perhaps has done the right thing. The United States has the highest fiscal deficit as a percentage of, of GDP in a growing economy ever. 
In the UK right now, the fiscal deficit as a percentage of GDP is 1%. If someone is allowing, so if, you're, if your economy is growing at like 1.5% and you can borrow at 50 basis points for, 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 for 10 years, why do you have a deficit of only 1% of GDP? You should be borrowing the bejesus at it, building roads and hospitals and airplanes and everything else. And then you look at Germany. Germany, the German government can borrow 10 years and get paid 70 basis points a year to borrow your money. And they run a fiscal surplus. Yeah. So it's almost like, right. I'm going to give you free money, but you don't think there's anything that you can invest in to make a return to justify getting the money for free. And so I, I, think, I think what's happening is monetary policy is running its course in terms of what it can do to stimulate economic growth. It has to now be matched by more fiscal stimulus, you know, infrastructure investment, et cetera, et cetera, so or we, tax cuts. We have that deficit, but we're not spending on infrastructure. What you did, which, uh, which, which probably has the fastest transmission effect in terms of getting the economy going, is you cut taxes. Right, exactly. And, so, but your right. deficit is, is a little north of 4% now. But you cut taxes, and that got the economy going. And China's doing infrastructure, but that's a whole other conversation. So I want to ask you one last question. We've talked about this before, and neither one of us could answer, so I'm going to ask you again. Okay, globalism was this inexorable force coming from World War II, Brexit, Donald Trump, Erdogan, Xi Jinping, Bonasaro, all these people, there's this rise of nationalism. And remember we had this conversation, I said, Jess, you think this is a question of our time. Is it a blip? Is it the end of globalism? Which one is it? Is it temporary or is it a permanent end? Have you thought about it? Yeah, I don't, uh, yes. Um, uh, we do a lot in part, uh, and I'll tell you why in a second. Um, I don't think it's the end of globalism, but do I think that globalism will be structurally challenged for years? Yes. Um, um, you know, treaties have been broken. Uh, you can't, you know, uh, there's a national self-interest that's dominating geopolitics. Uh, 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 but as, 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 as you and I have talked before, so Barclays today arguably is the only remaining bulge bracket investment bank. I have to interrupt you just because we got to go because the stock exchange is closing right now. Ah. So we have to go for the closing bell. So sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> sorry. And I really want to hear the answer. Maybe we can get after backstage and we can broadcast it out. Anyway, please join me in thanking Jess Staley, CEO of Barclays. Sorry about that.